0: Please uh, join me now in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to the letter to the Hebrews toward the end of the New Testament. As we turn now to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Mighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray and ask now that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, give us understanding, give us a growing desire to put your word into practice. And indeed, as we just sang, and in that light of life, we'll walk till traveling days are done. We thank you, Father, for your word and spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably most of us, or many of us, have heard of the word deconstruction. Now, it can be a good word to use. It's like applied to kind of the Christian life when, when. when cultural baggage that's not essential to the gospel is shedded but it can be bad because some people are using it to kind of um, claim that they're walking away from the faith they're turning away I'm, I'm deconstructing it was all false it was all fake and now I'm going to live the life that I want to live so there is kind of a good deconstruction there's a bad deconstruction it's It's a word that's sort of neutral, how you use it. The context you use it is important. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes this statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. At the end of Matthew's gospel, at the end of what we call the Great Commission, are these words. And behold, I am with you always, To the end of the age. Later in Hebrews, the author says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those are some great words, right? Jesus will never cast us out and he'll never leave us. But what's going on when we see people that we know and love? What's going on when we ourselves find ourselves Kind of on the brink. Well, I think our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, is a super help here. Chapter 17 of The Perseverance of the Saints. And I want to read just um, a brief uh, section. Uh, paragraph 1 They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there to the end and be eternally saved. Did you hear that? Neither totally nor finally fall away. Those are good words. Neither totally nor finally. And it goes on to describe kind of uh, what uh, eternal security is and, and what it looks like uh, that's not the total and the final falling away and in paragraph three it's got this expression and the neglect of the means of their perseverance and if they neglect the means of their perseverance they'll fall into grievous sin and for a time therein they'll receive god's displeasure grieve the holy spirit so again there's means there's god-ordained means to persevere And we're going to see that here in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews, a masterful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you had to read one book to kind of get the Old Testament and get the New Testament, it's the book of Hebrews. It's between the pastoral letters and the general letters. It even tells us what its purpose is. We read in chapter 13, verse 22, it's a brief Word of exhortation. That's that's a long, brief word of exhortation. It's, It's really a sermon. There's a pastoral concern running throughout Hebrews. There's doctrine, yes, but there's also exhortation, warnings, and encouragement. In order to do what? To persevere, to keep going on when you feel like giving up. To keep going on when you feel like giving up. I don't know if, I don't really know anyone who's never for a time felt that they couldn't go on. That they wanted to give up. And this book, this letter in particular is for those kind of people. And I think it's for all of God's people. It's written to exhort Christians who are under fire to stand firm in their faith in Jesus Christ as to the author, the audience, and the date, well, there's no address and there's no signature. The author is uncertain. According to the 3rd century Christian scholar origin, he says this, Who actually wrote the epistle? Only God knows. Great answer. It's true. The audience is primarily Jewish converts to Christianity who were suffering persecution, severe persecution for their newfound faith they were tempted to revert back to the old covenant forms and ceremonies to avoid persecution and we think it's probably written in the late 60s AD around 68 to 70 AD and what is the theme of Hebrews if you had to sum it up the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the revealer and the mediator Of God's grace the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ well our text is verses 12 through 15 and chapter 3 but to get the context I'm going to read verses 1 through 19 and to set the stage and in it we'll hear the warning we'll examine the danger and we'll pay close attention to the call so join with me as I read Hebrews chapter 3. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if we indeed, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today. because of unbelief so our focus is going to be on verses 12 through 15 we're gonna as I said hear the warning examine the danger and pay a close attention to the call we see the warning in the first words of verse 12 take care brothers take care brothers written um, to professing believers Here we see Israel's past, and now the church's present. It's a history lesson. Remember in Romans 15, we read, and I repeat often, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us That we might not desire evil as they did. Now from Paul, we've heard from Romans and 1 Corinthians. And now from the author of Hebrews to the Old Testament. All the things that were written in former days. And for us, it's everything. Old Testament, New Testament. It's all written in former days. And what is it for? So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Israel's history. They were promised rest, rest for the people of God. Let my people go so they can worship me. Come, follow me. I will give you rest, rest into the promised land. There's the exodus, there's the wilderness, and there's the entrance into the promised land. If you would and have your Bibles open, turn back to Psalm 95, of which is quoted in hebrews 3 it's often one of our calls to worship it is a glorious call to worship oh come let us sing to the lord let us come into his presence with thanksgiving Uh, oh come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand wonderful call to worship but it's also a warning Listen to how Hebrews, excuse me, Psalm 95 continues. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Skipping down to verse 10. They are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Isn't that amazing? In one Psalm, this magnificent, glorious call to worship. And then a warning, danger. There's acceptable worship and there's false worship. Take care. Take care. I initially memorized this verse as see to it. See to it, brothers. Take care, brothers. Take heed. In other words, watch out, pay attention, exercise a watchful guard. The idea here is to take a look around. Both to your present situation as well as to Israel's past. You see, again, everything written in the former days was written for our instruction. They're serving as examples for us. Take a look around not only to where you are now, but take a look at where Israel was then. We're called, as it were, to follow and not follow in their footsteps take care it's a warning this is the second of four major warning sections in hebrews think about the dashboard of your car and the warning lights that come on and when that warning light comes on let's be honest what is your immediate instantaneous reaction are you mad Or are you glad? The warning light comes on, the low tire pressure, the check engine light, the low oil. Are you immediately mad? Like, oh my, this is going to disrupt my perfect schedule for today. Oh my, we don't have enough money to cover the cost of an engine repair. Are you mad? Or are you glad? Are you thankful that the engine is telling you something before you unmistakably know it has quit on you. Now, a well-designed warning has two messages. There is danger ahead, and there is safety available. Warnings first let us know about the danger ahead, and here we see the danger, the, di- the disease of sin. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the danger? An evil or a sinful, unbelieving heart. Now, what's the leading cause of death in the United States? Well, I looked up the statistics yesterday from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and for 2020, it was heart disease, cancer, COVID 19, and accidents. And then I think stroke was number five. Now, according to the Bible, what's the leading cause of death? Well, it's similar. It's heart disease, a sinful heart. Sin comes not so much from the hands and the feet and the lips. Sin comes from the heart. And what is the heart according to the Bible? It's the center of a person. It's their mind, their will, their affections—it's the—it's the control center of their life. An evil, unbelieving heart—the root of sin. I, I think most of us would say, "What's the first sin? What's the original sin?" A lot of folks say pride, and there's a good there's good evidence that you could say that it's pride, but it's unbelief—an evil heart of unbelief, an evil or a sinful, unbelieving heart. We saw the end of chapter 3 of Hebrews. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not believe. Now, there are two characteristics of sin that are made known in our text that I believe we need to consider. The first is this. Sin is deceitful. It's deceptive. It's full of deceit. Notice when you skip down to the end of verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin do? It overpromises, it over underdelivers. It says, buy now and pay later. It's the bait and switch. You see the bait, you don't see the hook. That's how a fish gets caught. The fish only sees the bait. The fish doesn't see the hook. And that's often our case. We see the bait, we don't see the hook. You see, sin promotes the idea, the illusion that disobedience is somehow more secure, more pleasurable than faith, than obedience. So that you may not be hardened, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, here's a question for everybody from the youngest to the oldest of us How do you know when you're being deceived? How do you know when you're being deceived? We all have blind spots physical blind spots, and spiritual blind spots. Our heads cannot swivel around 360 degrees. I am so thankful for modern technology that beeps when there's a car in my blind spot. It has saved me a time or two. How do you know when you're being deceived? Well, you don't. Why? Because of blind spots. I hope... You will read and take to heart the something to think about quote on page six. We are blind to our blindness. We are blind to our blindness. Um, King David, remember King David caught up in coveting, lust, adultery, murder, lying. Did he see that? If he saw it, would he have done it? Nathan, the prophet, tells the story. You're the man, he says. And David, the truth of God's word breaks through. And David repents. David repents. He was blind for a time. But through God's work through Nathan... The mysterious work of God in the hearts of people, he then saw and he repented. You know, Jesus, if you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' interactions with some of the religious leaders, in particular the Pharisees, very, very careful with outward obedience. And yet, Jesus made it clear that underneath that was an evil unbelieving heart and what does jesus say let them alone they are blind guides they are deceived you know in matthew 23 there are seven woes to the scribes and pharisees and listen to jesus's words you blind guides you're being deceived you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel Think about that image, that picture for a moment. Straining out a gnat and yet swallowing a camel. It's a good picture. It's a good image of an inability or an unwillingness to distinguish between things. It's an ina, or in fact, it's the ability or the willingness to flip things upside down to make something that's minor into something major and something that's major into something minor. So when Jesus says, you blind guides, he's saying you can't distinguish between things and you actually flip things. And we're all, in many ways, very capable of that. Something extraordinary happened this past Thursday. I was attending a monthly lunch, and time of prayer with the area PCA pastors. And one pastor, when it came time for him to share, he shared about the past two years being really rough and tough, and throughout that time he had become hardened, and he was so sure of certain things and a few of us observed that attitude and, and a few of us went to him kind of one-on-one and we tried to bring it to his attention. Now you couldn't bring him up on charges because it was an attitude. It was an attitude. It was a state of heart. We, you couldn't do anything but you prayed. You prayed that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Convict people of sin. And I am thankful to report, I am overjoyed that that brother in Christ shared, and he said, I repent, and I need to make amends why I've offended, and I'm so thankful that God broke through my friends it was a glorious time and you know what when he shared that none of us in the group then put the handcuffs on him and said okay let's go no we rejoiced we had a brother repent and we rejoiced he recognized his sin he repented and he rejoiced we all rejoiced oh folks be encouraged Be encouraged that the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts and lives of his people. He didn't say this, but this is what he was saying. I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, man, I wish you guys could have been there with me. Indeed, repentance is one of the high places in the Christian life. Especially when it's repentance of an attitude. a a, a posture be encouraged my friends be encouraged so sin is deceptive and sin is dangerous it's deadly deadly look at it leading you to fall away from the living God an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God you know there is a slippery slope Oftentimes that's applied that, oh, if you do this in ministry, you can't but one day end up doing that. Most of the time that's false. But there is a slippery slope. The deceitfulness of sin leads to evil, unbelieving heart, leads to a hard heart. And, and per, a person falls away, to, to, to turn away from, to, to forsake, and the word is to apostatize, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And fall away from who? The living God. Why did the author say the living God? Maybe he wants to remind his reader that this is the God who keeps his promises and carries out his threats. Leading you to fall away. Interesting. Leading you. Sin becomes the leader You're under the influence of sin. You know, when I was growing up, it was a DWI, what, driving while intoxicated, and it became a DUI, driving under the influence. So let's ask this question right now for all of us. Under whose influence are you? You are living under the influence right now of what? Sin here takes the lead, influences, leads you where eventually it says to fall away from the living God. Now a well-designed and a truly helpful warning doesn't just announce the problem, it doesn't just express the danger, rather it goes on to offer the solution to present the route to safety and here it does that through the call to the mutual care and concern for one another in the church. The call, the cure. What is it? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Walk together to sustain and strengthen faith. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, that we are members of one another. There is a mutual care and concern. You know, you go to a website of, say, uh, Procter & Gamble, and somewhere on the website it talks about its corporate responsibility. You go to the the, uh, website of IBM, and somewhere it talks about uh, corporate responsibility. Well, you know what? There is a corporate responsibility here in the church for one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another. Now, encourage can be overused. Encourage can be abused. Here, but exhort, admonish. It's a strong encouragement. In the secular Greek literature of the day, it's used with naval or military commander putting strength into his sailors or soldiers, instilling courage and confidence. I think there's some examples we might be seeing in the news of some commanders, military commanders in the Ukrainian army, instilling courage and confidence in their soldiers. They are exhorting them. And this exhortation is both negative, away from sin, sins of commission and omission, but also positive toward righteousness. It's not just a warning against something, but here, it's a cheering ministry. A few months ago, I referred to an article I um, read and I sent it to you all, the surprising ministry of encouragement. The surprising ministry of encouragement. What a what a needed ministry in the church the world is beating us up the flesh is beating us up the devil is bleeding, beating us up who is picking us up who is building us up if not you who the context here is corporate It's impossible to obey this apart from being part of a a fellowship of believers. We need each other. It's the benefits and blessings uh, of a a local church. There's going to be several people joining the church in the next few weeks. And we're going to talk about the, the benefits and blessings that the church is to you and you are to the church. Okay, exhort one another. How often? For how long? Is it one and done? Is it, okay, I've exhorted, I've encouraged, I've checked that block, I'm done? No. Every day, daily. It's immediate and it's ongoing. It's, as it were, an acute provision and a chronic provision. For how long? As long as it is called today. During this present age of grace, the time between the already and the not yet, daily as long as it is today, and my friends, guess what? It's always today, right? Today is Sunday, right? Yesterday was Saturday, but when we were in Saturday, it was today. Tomorrow is Monday, but when we're there tomorrow, it's going to be today. When can you or I get out of today, We can't. Isn't that an amazing, all-encompassing, you can't get out of it, encourage one another daily, exhort one another daily. Okay, daily, as long as it's called today. It costs, to be sure. It's inconvenient. We, We may lose some of our leisure time. But there is nothing more glorious than encouraging and exhorting a brother or sister in Christ and seeing it well received. Holding on to our original confidence. You see that in verse 14 if we just go there. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Well what is our Original confidence, well, first of all, it's not a conditional statement, it's a descriptive statement there. And what is it? It's not self-confidence, it's not arrogance, it's not haughtiness. What's our original confidence? It's the gospel. Remember these words, this quote, the Bible is summed up in two sentences. First, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. And second, cheer up. God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. Through an understanding and application of the gospel, we're confident and we're courageous. Why? Because we're worse than we think we are. But we're also simultaneously more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope. Our original confidence. It's the gospel. So our passage we see presents the warning, describes the danger, and then issues a call. as you heard from confession of faith 173 there are means means that god uses to preserve his people and what are two means of grace two ways that god keeps his people from falling away what are two means that he preserves them well, one is this through sober warnings God keeps his people from falling away. He preserves them through means, through warnings. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes that by God's power, you are being guarded through faith. In God's powerful wisdom, he issues warnings. Warnings, means, means of grace, And the second major one is through one another in the church. You know, look around, look around at one another. You are God's means to encourage others to persevere. You are God's means to exhort one another, to cheer on, to help someone who's ready to give up, to go on. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Renewal as a Way of Life, says this, Among the most vital means of grace are other Christians. Neither the Bible nor the sacraments will leave the shelf or the sanctuary to restore a Christian who is too discouraged or backslidden to pray or worship. But a concerned brother or sister will do this again and again. You know what happened this past Thursday was glorious and when I approached that brother in Christ when I approached that fellow pastor a few months ago he received it well he didn't stiff arm me he didn't try to trap me he didn't you know what about me or what about is of me he just listened and thanked me what a What a great ministry we can have toward one another. I mean, he sets a good example of me, for me too. And I hope for you as well, to receive well when someone approaches you. To be approachable. To not have an attitude that you're so right that nobody can approach you. That is death in the Christian life and that is death in a church body for that kind of an attitude. Our need to hear his voice. You heard that. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In the church quote of the week, Sinclair Ferguson writes that for the believer to recognize his voice, to recognize the voice of the good shepherd of Jesus is one of the highest privileges we have. My friends, how are you doing right now at recognizing the voice of Jesus? The comfort and call of the gospel to hear, of course, means to understand and obey. And Jesus, as we read, is the faithful one who brings the gospel, not only in word, but in deed. The gospel is the good news of our crucified and risen Savior, An evil, unbelieving heart. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's the prayer of the father of the very ill son. When he's with Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So our call is to exhort one another, to encourage one another as long as it is called today. And our passage means what it says, exhort one another to do what? To maintain a soft heart. To maintain a soft heart before the Lord and before one another. May we here at Grace and Peace, may all of us be an encouraging and an encouraged people who are secure enough to give and humble enough to receive a good word of exhortation to cheer one another and to be cheered by one another. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, this word of exhortation in the midst of an entire letter of exhortation. Oh, Father, would you keep our ears open and our hearts soft? And, Father, Would you help us to approach one another from a position of humility and lowliness? A position that desires not to tear one another down, but to build one another up. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. May your word and spirit have their way with your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.